Well, I hope you had a great Christmas. We, uh, we had a really wonderful time. Two of uh, my sons were back. One's in Korea, and so we were kind of missing him, but we really enjoyed having everybody together this Christmas, and I hope, uh, hope you had the same experience. Um, this passage that we're going to look at today, Romans chapter 7, is one that has been uh, just a, a really important one to me in my own Christian life. I can still remember the first time that I read this passage a number of years ago when I was a college student, or at least the first time as a, as a believer wrestling with my own walk with God. And uh, one of the things I think this passage helps us to understand is some of the frustration of being a Christian. And it gives some permission for that, that frustration is a normal part of the Christian life and uh, that we shouldn't be surprised at some of that frustration um, because we've got a goal and uh, that goal is blocked. There, there, we have a, d- a dream, a desire. Uh, a, um, there are things that we aspire to that we will never accomplish in this life. And that's frustrating. That, that creates in us, I think, some anger and uh, some, a real sense of, of loss in our life. And so this passage, I think, helps us to understand where that frustration comes from, why it's there, and why it's really a normal part of the Christian life. And I think it gives us some permission to accept some of the things that go on in our life. So I think it's a very important aspect of uh, our Christian walk. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 7. And uh, um, I've got the whole chapter, but this is a very complex chapter. There's just a lot of... A lot of stuff in it, a lot of parts of it that are difficult to understand. And I'm not going to try and explain everything about Romans 7 to you. There's just a little too much to get into one sermon. Uh, I'm going to try and keep this as simple as possible. And I'd like to hit some of the high points in this chapter as we read through it here. Uh, Romans chapter 7, 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man as long as he lives? And then there's kind of two parts to this, and verses 1 through 13 um, have this part that starts out explaining to us that the law is good. And he says, so then, um, in verse 4, So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. And so Paul is saying that the law is good, but the law exposes sin. And sin uses the law uh, uh, against us. And so he's making that argument. Uh, Then jump down to verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? Meaning the law. By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as as sin... It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. And so that first part is just making the point that the law is good, but that sin uses it against us and defeats us. And then verses 14 to 25, the second half of this passage, 
uh, is what I would call the song of the frustrated Christian. And it's the, the part that I related to as a young believer when I read it. And here's what Paul writes. He said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, and that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, nor the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does not. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So that's perfectly clear to everyone, right, as you read that? <laughs> it's a little bit of a difficult passage as you read it, and you have to, uh, you've got to wrestle with it a little bit to mind the truths that are there. Uh, but it says something very, very important to us. Um, now there's a question that's debated about this passage, and the question is, who is this I? If you go through there and you circle all the I's and the me's, you'll come up to some 30 to 40 I's and me's, and particularly in the second half of, the, of chapter 7. Uh, who is this I? As Paul is talking about himself, but is himself when? And at what co condition in his life? Some people would say that it was Paul before he was a Christian. So that he would, if he says a thing like, uh, I am a slave to sin, and there's nothing good in me, that sounds like Paul before he was a Christian. doesn't sound like something that a Christian would say. Uh, or maybe it's a carnal Christian. And so maybe it's that the Christian who's living in chapter 7 in, uh, in, in a life without the victory that belongs to us as believers and that a believer needs to get into chapter 8. And so it's this passage uh, speaking to the carnal Christian. Or maybe this is a description of the mature believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe this is just the normal Christian life that's being described. And that's the position I'm taking. That's what I think is true. That this is the Apostle Paul speaking to us at 50 plus years of age. About, probably about my age. And he's been a Christian for over 20 years. And he is probably one of the most... I would say, you know, the, the poster child of Christians. You know, here's the guy who represents, written most of what we have about the Christian life. Uh, here's the guy who's lived the Christian life better than anyone else ever has. And this guy is describing his life after being a believer for some 20 years and now a very mature believer. And he's describing it with this degree of frustration in his life. Finding myself also in that position, being in my 50s, having been a Christian for some 30 plus years, I still relate to what Paul is saying. I still can hear these words and say, you know, that does describe me. That's still true of me as, as a Christian. And so 
Uh, let me explain that to you as we work through this passage. I think it's important as we look at it, this is the way I like to come at this, is, uh, it's kind of a confusing passage. I want to break it down into some parts where I can get my, ha- my head around it. I like to think in terms of who are the players here? Let's list the different uh, parts that are described in this passage. And uh, we have uh, uh, this list. We've got the law. Uh, all through this passage, the subject of this Romans chapter 7 is the law. The law being, you know, the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments, all of the, in, the instructions and commands from the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. There's law in the New Testament. Anytime God tells us what we should do or what we ought to do, or He lays down some boundaries for our life that says, live here, don't go over there. Stay within these lines. That's the law. It's God telling us how we ought to live our lives. Showing us He's our Creator. He knows how we were meant to live our human life. And so when He instructs us about how we ought to live and how we ought not to live, uh, that's the law that God is, is giving to us. And the law is good. The clear message from Romans chapter 7 is that the law is very, very good. It's there for our protection. It's there for our benefit. It's there to uh, help us to understand how is it that I could live a healthy, happy, satisfied life. It's by living within these boundaries. These boundaries are freedom. They're not restriction. The, the boundaries of the law bring freedom to our lives, not restriction to our lives. And so the law is good. It's God's instruction for our life. And then there's sin. All through the passage it talks about sin. Now, it's not talking about sins the specific things that I do, it's talking about sin as a principle most of the time. Sin as this uh, fallenness in our nature. And uh, sin as a principle of rebellion against God and His law. And then there's the body. The passage talks about my body. And, it, you know, that's talking about this. Uh, my physical body, the the vessel within which I experience my life. And it's one thing that's very clear in the Bible. And in the, in the, the times when the Bible was written, lots of people thought the body was evil. Anything physical was evil. Christianity very clearly teaches that our body is not evil. Our body was created by God, and our body will live for eternity. We will spend eternity in a physical body, in a resur- this body resurrected again and made new. And so our bodies are not evil and it's not bad and there's nothing about the things that I feel or experience in my body that are uh, uh, bad or sinful in and of themselves. And then there's the I. And again, 30 to 40 times as you look through this passage, there's this first person statement, I, me, my. Uh, And so that's Paul, the person. the personality, the individual that, that dwells within this body, that is part of this body. That's, that's him and his mind and his thinking. And he's speaking as a, an I that is a Christian. It's an I who is indwelt with, by the Holy Spirit of God. And so is this I with, with, uh, uh, that's working out, making decisions about how life is to be lived. It's this mind, will, and emotions that is the person. And then there is this idea of the flesh or the sin nature. And this one's really important. The NIV translates the word flesh as the sinful nature. Uh, I wish they wouldn't do that. That's the one place in the NIV that always disappoints me. 
I think that's we should, we ought to hang on to that word flesh. Uh, that's the word that the that the Bible gives us is uh, for this concept. And the idea of flesh is not, you know, the stuff that's on my bones. It's this propensity within me to disobey and rebel against God. And there is laced in me, in my body, and in my mind, in my will, and my emotions. Every part of me is has has this principle of flesh, this sinful nature, this propensity, this tendency to always go against what God wants. And so if God's law comes to me and says, you should do this, my flesh says, I want to do that. It's it's always going to argue and fight with God. And that's that's a part of every single one of us. And then lastly is the Holy Spirit. And so when we become believers, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells this whole thing. Uh, my body, my mind, my will, my emotions, my eye. The Spirit of God indwells me. Uh, and there's this war that begins within me between the desire of the Holy Spirit to rule over my mind, will, emotions, and body, my entire being. He wants to rule. He wants God's law to rule over every aspect of my life. And He wants that for my good. He, he loves me as the will to good for my life, and He wants to rule and bring goodness and peace and hope and love and joy into every corner of my life. But my flesh, that propensity to disobey God within me, resists Him. And so there is a war that wages within me. Now, I, I think it's really important if we're going to understand this passage that we back up a little bit and think about the things that Paul has said in Romans 5 and 6. Um, and, and for me, I'm, my mind is so full of the book of Ephesians, I, I, I can't even talk about this subject without having Ephesians just ooze from my pores because I've lived in that book so much. And so I'm, I'm going to draw a little more from Ephesians than I do from the Romans. Uh, but next slide. We need to think about our position in Christ. At the very moment that you placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, just a whole bunch of stuff happened. God did stuff on your behalf. You were completely changed at that moment. And you, most of this we can't see, we can't touch, we can't feel. It's what some people call positional truth. It's things that were done for us and on our behalf by the power of God. We were changed at the very core of our being. And so that at that moment, I died with Christ on the cross. I owed a debt because of my sin. The debt was death. And so I died with Jesus. And my debt was paid. Through that death, I, I identify with him and his death, and that death paid the debt for my sin. And I was buried with Jesus, and I was resurrected to a new life in Christ. All of that at the instant that you trusted Jesus as your Savior. You were justified at that moment. In other words, you were declared to be righteous. And that's, that's uh, purely a, an act of God declaring that because... The blood of Jesus washed away your sin, paid your debt. You are now made righteous. And you stand righteous before God. When He looks at you, He doesn't see your sin. He sees a justified and righteous and forgiven person for now and forever. And you're holy and blameless, the Bible says. There, there are no accusations that can be brought against you by your enemy because you have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are without blame before the throne of God. 
And if you come into God's presence and if the devil wants to come there and say, why is he there? The Lord Jesus can say, because he or she's holy. She's blameless. They're without sin. They're justified. They're righteous. They're pure in my eyes. I've made them so by my blood. And you're redeemed. You've been purchased out of bondage to sin and you're freed from it and you don't have to sin anymore. And you're a new creation. And you get a brand new identity. And you know, all of us as human beings, we have this major problem with self-esteem. I mean, we are just uh, broken down people that struggle with who am I, what am I for, and am I good for anything? And we all battle that. And that's because of that sin problem. And the Bible tells us, though, that moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are made new and you got a brand new identity. There's a, there's a who am I that now exists that will be who I am throughout all of eternity. It's the real who I am. And we are placed into Christ and we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And the Bible tells us that we are seated with Christ and under Christ's feet are all the powers of evil. They're under His feet, defeated, and we are, we are there in His lap and seated with Him. Uh, that seated is on a throne, ruling over all the powers of evil and all the resistance against God. And we are there in Christ's bosom, held close, seated with Him victorious over sin and death. And everything that I will ever be, I already am in Christ. Everything I will ever be throughout all of eternity, when I am there 10 million years from now, worshiping around the throne of God, what I am then, I am now. We are already everything that we will ever be in eternity. Already, but not quite yet. Now, we as Christians need to, it's our responsibility to figure that out, meditate on that, think about those things, fill our hearts and minds with the truth of who, who the Bible says that we are. That's our job as believers, is to, is to renew our minds with all of this truth and begin to behave according to who we are. That's the way we live out our Christian life. And the law of God, the instructions from the Bible about how we are to live, those are the instructions of, of this new person that we've become. And so the law is good and it shows us the parameters of the kind of behavior and lifestyle that God is calling us to live. And so that's what we as Christians should be, be like. And if you're a Christian, you're going to agree with it. There's going to be some part of you inside, the Holy Spirit that indwells you, the new you, that's going to identify with the law of God and the instructions of the Bible that are going to say, yes, I want that. That's exactly what I want in life. That's the kind of person I want to be. And that's where our frustration comes in. Uh, our frustration comes in as I discover who I am and I learn the law and I love it and I want to be this way. But then as I seek to practice and live out that kind of life, I have this kind of thing. As Paul says, I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. Or Paul also writes, For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. 
And so there's a frustration that comes with knowing who we are and knowing what we're supposed to be like and, and knowing uh, just the, glorious, uh, the gloriousness of the Christian life that the Bible describes, but never quite measuring up to it, never quite being able to achieve in this life who I know I will be. And that creates this tension in our life and a frustration. Now let me look at, share with you an example. Uh, these are Oreo cookies, if you can't see from there. And uh, there's nothing wrong with Oreo cookies. Oreo cookies are, are perfectly acceptable. My mother introduced me to Oreo cookies, uh, as well as a lot of other things I now regret. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with uh, an Oreo cookie or two. And so our bodies have a natural desire to eat things like this. They taste good. They're sweet. They're a treat. And to have the, you know, the label tells you that a serving size is two or three cookies. You know, if you can kind of keep it to that, that's not so bad once in a while to have a cookie on occasion. Uh, Oreo cookies are wonderful things. And so I grew up eating Oreo cookies, and it's kind of neat. They got this little Ziploc thing on the front now, and you can just, oh, wow, uh, get right in there and grab them. Uh, my body has a natural desire for them. My mother introduced me to them. I started to eat them. And all through my life, as I was growing up, I ate them, two and three, uh, always two and three at a time, you know, never, because my fingers really can't get around more than that. So it's kind of what you can pull out of there uh, and eat. And then it kind of moved from, from two or three to, to a row at a time to a, a couple of rows and sometimes the entire package in a day. It's, it's happened. Um, but I just loved Oreo cookies. I still really love Oreo cookies. And, and I went along through much of my life eating Oreo cookies, not really thinking much about it, even as a Christian, not really questioning whether I should eat them by the package or not. They're just, they're good. I like them. They're a pleasure. Uh, but along came Dr. Paul Post uh, and, and Steve Zavonar, if he's here someplace. They represent the law. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and they and nutritionists uh, explained to me that if you eat this stuff by the row and by the package, you're going to fill your body with these things called trans fats and sugars and calories that your body can't deal with, and you're, you're going to ruin your body. Now, the Bible tells me that my body is the temple of God, and that I need to take care of it. And uh, that if I do that, if I eat Oreo cookies by the row and by the package... I'm going to give myself diabetes. I'm going to give myself heart disease. I'm going to give myself all, you know, extra weight, all kinds of problems if I continue to do this. I can't do it. And so I told myself, you know, as Dr. Post said, don't do it. The Bible says don't do it. That's the law. Don't do it. <laughs> Sin is awakened in me. Uh, this desire, this inordinate desire, this uh, excessive desire... To eat Oreo cookies is awakened in me even more now that I know the law that I'm not supposed to eat Oreo cookies and I try not to eat Oreo cookies. Uh, if they're in the house and no one's around looking, I'll eat them by the row. I will. Karen will buy them and hide them and uh, not let me know that they're in the house because uh, I can't resist them. They're, they're, they're powerful. Um, so I, I think that's, that's an example of what happens to this. Now, we can laugh at that, 
But that's really not funny. Uh, if you're a person who's really struggling with that, with a, a weight issue, that's not so funny. Uh, it can be funny with me because I, you know, I'm relatively skinny. But it, for some people, it's not funny because of the, the, the problems that it brings to our lives. Um, sin is not funny. Sin brings destruction to us. It ruins us. It tries to kill us and destroy us. And God's law is there to protect us. Paul Post isn't telling me that stuff to be mean, to keep me away from my good cookies. He's there. To, he's trying to save my life. And so it is with all kinds of sin. And we could come up with a whole list of them that relate to the body, like alcohol and and you know all the things you the, uh, internet pornography and and just there's a whole long list of real obvious things. But there's there's sins of the emotions and there's sins of the mind as well. There's beliefs. There's there's gossip. There's bitterness. There's anger. There's fear. There's all kinds of things that, that, that God gives us instructions about. And the, the law tells us how we ought to be. And we want to be like that. We, we agree, yes, you know, I, I, I agree with, with Paul. I really shouldn't eat those things. Not that much of it. But I do it anyway. And so I end up like Paul. Oh, what a wretch I am. Who will save me? from this body of death. And we become very awakened to our brokenness and our weakness and our failure as, as believers. And so let's go back and we'll review our players. Something happens in me when the law comes into play and I want to stop eating Oreo cookies. The flesh, this propensity to disobey God, this propensity to do what's bad for me rather than good, comes into play and um, it just doesn't care. And the, the feelings and this inordinate desire takes over. And the law, Paul's point is that the law has no ability to deal with that in us. If we try to use the law to deal with that fleshly drive in us, every time you use it, all you will do is turbocharge your desire for sin. The law turbocharges sin. And every teenager, let me speak to you for a minute. Uh, every teenager, every young person that's heading off to college, you're living here. You've grown up with the law. You've grown up in the church with the law explained to you and protected and in a home where you, were, you lived within those parameters. But as you come into adulthood and you face the freedoms of making these decisions on your own, each and every one of you get faced with this. And, and it takes a lot of you out. The frustration, the, 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 the failure and uh, the struggle with uh, the flesh and the one part of you that says, I want to do what's right, but the other part that, you know, be, as you live based on the law of your parents' voice in the back of your head and the church and the rules that held you uh, in place all those years, now that very stuff that was there giving you instructions now becomes the thing that turbocharges you off into sin. The law, the law has no ability to deliver us from this problem, this wretchedness within us. It does help us to identify it and define it and understand where the problems are. But it doesn't bring any deliverance for us. The law cannot do it. The frustration that we experience as believers is a part of the normal Christian life. Now, I come to this, I'm at the end of chapter 7. Uh, now there's, 
a great verse of hope that follows up here. And it says, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there's the answer. But he doesn't really go on and explain it until chapter 8. And I don't want to go too far into chapter 8. We'll leave that for Pastor Rick. Uh, But where I think we need to leave this today is with somewhat with the frustration. The frustration of being a believer who is very, very aware of the good that God has for us, but also very, very aware of the weakness within us and the brokenness. And the place to be, and it's where the place I'm going to leave you today, I'm not going to give you the full answer. You need to pay real close attention as Pastor Rick preaches through chapter 8 because it, it works through that answer. But I'll, I'll, I'll leave you right here. Brokenness is good. Brokenness. Wretched man that I am. Come to the end of your rope where you say, you know what, in my struggle with sin, I can't do this. It's not in me. I can't stop eating Oreo cookies. I can't do it. You leave me alone in the house with Oreo cookies and I'll eat And that's the funny one. There's lots of them out there that just break your heart what sin does to people's lives. But that brokenness is where, that's where we got to be. Where we are broken before God and we come to Jesus Christ and say, I can't do this. This Christian life in this world, I can't do it in my own strength. Lord Jesus, if you don't, Fill me with your spirit. I gotta surrender to you and your power in my life. And I need to walk daily by the power of that spirit to do this. And that's what Roman eight Romans eight is gonna explain to us how to walk in that spirit. So let's end in our brokenness. And in your heart, whatever your thing is, whatever sin besets you, Let's bring it before His throne. Recognize that you are holy and blameless in His eyes. That's, I mean, the grace is just it's awesome. When we, we're faced with the brokenness and you come and you just get that grace in His presence and He says, hey, it's okay. I've forgiven all that. Let's just go there into His throne room and receive His grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before You very, very aware of our fallenness. The flesh is real in us. We experience this. We understand Romans 7 very well. We are frustrated. Lord Jesus, we know that you give the victory. We also know that we've experienced it. We've seen it. We've seen the power that you have brought into our lives and you've given us victory over so many things. Lord Jesus, brokenness is good. In honesty with you about our sin, that's what we, that's what we lay before your feet. We're, we're, we're sinful and broken but Lord Jesus you have made us holy and, and righteous and blameless in your eyes and you love us just the way we are thank you Jesus for your grace it's in your name we pray Amen